0: Chapter 5 of Homecraft Rugs. Their Historic Background, Romance of Stitchery, and Method of Making by Lydia LeBaron Walker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joanne Turner. Chapter 5. Needlewoven Rugs. Chapter 5 includes color plates 6 through 9, which may be viewed in the online version of this book. Part 1. Navajo Style. There is a curious legend, that the Spider-Man instructed the Navajos how to make their looms spin and weave. The myth is full of beauty, in which the elements of nature are drawn upon in a mystical and glorified way. The top beam of the loom is designated as the sky cord, the lower one as the earth cord. The sun's rays, sheet, flash, and zigzag lightning, rain rays, rock crystal, turquoise, abalone, etc. are liberally included in the equipment and work, supplying a gorgeous conception. There is reason to believe, however, that the Navajos learned loom making and weaving from the Pueblo Indians, instructed in wool weaving by the Spaniards, who brought the first sheep to Mexico. The Spaniards were experts in weaving and well acquainted with the designs of the Moors. From every angle, the origin of the Navajo blanketry, whether given by the elemental god, as in the Spider-Man legend, or obtained in an intricate and circuitous way from the Moors, is one to stir the imagination. A remarkable point is that no patterns seem to have been passed on from the Spaniards, who, when they transmitted their skill in crafts elsewhere, left their stamp and design also. The home craft rug maker cannot help being thankful that the Amrans either failed to learn the Old World designs or willfully refused to, for it is the barbaric quality of pattern in the gorgeous Navajo blankets which lends distinction and it is this which the home rugmaker can copy in a weave closely resembling the Navajo stitchery. Women are the weavers of Navajo blankets, and it is not without a sense of fitness that attention is called to this fact, since the chief makers of home craft rugs are also women, though it is hardly expected that they attend to every detail preliminary to the work, as do the Amerins. With them, the women often own the flocks of sheep, shear and wash the wool, and put it through all processes until it comes out in the exquisite blankets of their own creation in design as well as weave. The high place the women hold in the tribe is due in large measure to their skill in this occupation. In the Navajo needle weaving, the pattern is worked directly on the warp as the actual weft, the darning stitch is the one employed. Tapestry work is well described as embroidery done on the warp threads only, in which the weft is worked in, around, and about the warp. It would be difficult to find a more accurate account of Navajo blanketry weaving, or of needle weaving of this type. It is true that the Navajo women generally work the actual balls of colors in and out through the warp strands, Instead of using needles, but they do occasionally employ slender sticks of wood to which the weft is fastened, thereby making substitutes for needles. The needle-woven rug maker can discard the bodkin type of needle she employs and use the balls in true Amron style if she prefers. The process remains the same. It is the introduction of color motifs in the independent manner of the Navajo weavers that makes the blankets impossible of accurate duplication in machine weave. It is this method and use of color in designs that gives a note of tapestry weaving of a primitive order to their textiles. Because of these very elements of crudity, it is admirably suited to needlewoven rug craft. The whole scheme of decorative treatment in Navajo blanket rugs is in marked contrast to other accepted types which follow more on the Oriental intricacy than Occidental simplicity. Motifs appear which are closely allied to and apparently taken from old Inca and Peruvian ceramics and textiles. This would be expected as they too are Occidental. Amaranth and Mexican basketry patterns are also reflected in the blanket motifs. Navajo designs are broad, virile, and elemental in both delineation and color. These features are stressed in the choice antique blanket rug, exquisite in texture and design, pictured on plate seven. The entire field is of gorgeous baeta. Standing out clearly against this is the simple pattern of undulating mountain peaks of black outlined with greenish blue and the central row of diamonds with threads of rich yellow interwoven. Without any false idea of being able to reproduce such a rug, the very simplicity of the pattern is one to tempt the homecraft rug maker who considers creating a needle woven rug in Navajo style. The double saddle blanket, plate six, reproduced in the colors of the original rug is of an altogether different type although the same virility and barbaric quality pertain. It is a rug which a homecraft maker would hesitate to copy, but the beauty of balance and design and color well repays careful study. The significance of the pattern is involved and the design intricate. This fine example belongs to a group of Navajo blankets designated as individualistic, Symbolism could scarcely be absent from such design, but as that is the basis of all units of ornament, a rug maker should feel no more hesitancy in copying motifs with what accuracy she can than in applying oriental rug units to her own product. Where reticence should not be lacking is in the use of motifs well known to be sacred, such as the ye and others of the sacred sand paintings, masks, etc. These are to be avoided, as one would avoid the duplication of a prayer rug. Designs can be taken directly from Navajo blankets or first indicated on drafting paper, each square on the paper representing one square of stitchery. If the weave is coarse, a square may indicate a single stitch, but if fine, more than one stitch may be needed, in which case it would require two or more rows of weaving to complete a square. This is a matter of small moment, easily allowed for when weaving. See plate eight. Many beautiful Navajo blankets have no more complicated designs than a succession of stripes of different colors. Others have jagged lightning lines zigzagging across the rug. Sometimes in rows extending the entire length of the surface, there are endless arrangements of just the angular lines depicting lightning. One rug has for its main bands two contrasting shades of indigo blue across the rug, the light in fine lines. Through the center of each wide, dark band is a line of deep yellow from selvage to selvage. The blue bands are separated at intervals by narrower bands composed of red and white. The diamond medallion, having two smaller diamonds cutting off each lengthwise extremity, is a familiar pattern. Squares and triangles are also much used. Serrated peaks represent mountains. While squares may mean the four quarters of the globe, the four winds, or the four points of the compass all of which are synonymous to the amaranth. Eight parallel black lines, vertically placed, indicate rain. The diamond may mean a page for documentary purposes or a slingshot. The swastika is frequently found, and there is no reason to believe it to have any but its regular significance of good luck and happiness. Some of the Occidental geometric motifs are identical with those of the Orient, but this is to be expected, as all peoples have combined lines to produce such figures. It will be seen from the foregoing that the motifs have a primitive simplicity, easy to reproduce. It was not until long after the origin of the blanket itself that color was introduced, the first ones being of plain white wool with nothing outstanding to recommend them. These textiles are not recalled when Navajo blankets are now considered, but the finely woven fabrics with colors vivid and gorgeous, bold in design and pure in tone. Black and white are lavishly used with the color that is unchanged as it comes directly from the sheep. A gray mixture of the two is much in evidence. Next in frequency is red. Both with the brilliant cochineal and the peculiar brownish-red of dye from Brazil wood. Indigo blue in various depths of tone is as often found. A soft brown in light and dark shades constantly appears, and green is not lacking. In the innovation blanket of Germantown wool, colors are more variegated, but it is well for the home rug maker to stress the type in its purity, even when this yarn is the medium. The name Innovation Blanket was applied to the Navajo blankets when first this yarn was used in their making. It is a term well-suited to home craft needlewoven rugs in Navajo style, which are sufficiently different from other rugs in that category to be considered themselves innovations. Only a lifelong devotion to the rug-making, equal to that of the Amron women, would ensure the same degree of perfection, but duplication of equipment and medium used in like stitchery is not impossible. Color is as significant as design in the Navajo art. Red typifies the sun in its glory, yellow the west of the setting sun, black is the color of the north and blue of the south. These latter also denote male and female, vigor and gentleness. Colors in combination acquire new meaning in design. Red deserves more than a passing comment, as it is the color which in the Baeta blanket is responsible for its name. So precious was this originally that a blanket in which even a little appeared took its name therefrom, which custom remains to this day. A point of interest to the homecraft rug maker is that the color was secured from strands of a previously woven fabric called base, or in Spanish baeta. It was variously reputed to have come to America from Turkey, Spain, and England via Spain. This much-prized woolen cloth resembles flannel, and the dye which gave it its particular color was acquired from two sources, Brazil wood and cochineal. It is said that the word Brazil is responsible for the naming of Brazil by the King of Portugal, because Brussels wood was found there though previously considered exclusively an oriental product. The bayeta cloth was not cut into strips, as are rag rug strands, but was carefully unraveled and the thread re-woven into the Navajo textiles. The fabric was costly and imported luxury to be used sparingly. The present fashion for raveling out old sweaters, scarves, parts of worn carpets, etc., is reminiscent of the same proceeding in the making of beeta blankets. Those who use rags in the making of their needle-woven Navajo rugs will be fortunate if they have some old red flannel petticoats to cut up. If not, a flannel of the same sort would be right for the gayest red. For modern decorative schemes, it is well to use it with reserve, not because of its expense or scarcity, as was the reason with the Amerens, but purely because it is too gaudy for the present ideas in floor coverings, the shade should enliven, but not predominate. The brownish-red of the Brazilwood dye can be introduced with more freedom. Germantown yarn is the medium par excellence for these rugs, as it is identical with that used in the genuine Navajo innovation blankets For the purpose of quick work, similar wool yarns and rug sizes are advised, a coarser weave being the only result and difference. Candlewick is a good substitute, although it is cotton. Roving belongs to the same type of medium. Rope jute, which is lightly twisted, being a jute roving, can be used successfully for porch needle-woven rugs. Rags and stockings cut into sizes approximating the rug yarns may also be used, but if they are, the rugs automatically become rag rugs in Navajo style, belonging as truthfully to that group as to the needlewoven rugs. There are two methods of needle weaving in Navajo style. In one, the work progresses in consecutive rows from selvage to selvage, Each color being introduced as called for in the row of the pattern being followed, it is so that the Navajo women weave their blankets. The second method is to weave in the motifs first and then work in the background. The first method is advised. It is wise in these needle woven rugs, as in those in the colonial rag rug type, to put in several rows of the indifferent weft, though but one inch will be sufficient, for no fringe has to be allowed for. This weft is battened down firmly, and against it a narrow web is packed. This need be but a very few rows deep. The extra length of warp at each end of the rug, when the indifferent weft is raveled out, allows for knots to be tied easily in couples, as in the colonial type. The loose warp ends should then be cut short, In the innovation blankets that are made to fill the demand for blanket rugs, fringe is added, but it is made from the rug yarn and not from the warp. Because the Navajo textile is a blanket made use of as a rug, it has slight differences in weave from that accepted for rugs in general. For example, there is no fringe, except in the innovation blanket, the medium being the same throughout the entire length a fringed blanket is an anomaly, as also is one with a heading. The presence of these features announces that the blanket is really intended for a rug. Then they are indeed innovations, rightly named. The needle-woven rug maker has the privilege of choice in making her rugs, those with plain ends being of the regulation type and the fringed ones of the innovation order. In any event, When the rugs are intended for floor coverings, it is desirable to weave in a few rows of the doubled warp, as in colonial rag rug weaving. This web is a protection to the finer medium used in the rug surface. The needle-woven stitch is the same as described for colonial rag rugs, namely that of darning. The work progresses in routine manner until design is introduced which may not be until quite a strip of weaving has been completed, since many Navajo blankets have no border whatsoever. As soon as a row comes, in which color work starts, each unit of color is looked upon as a separate entity, and is needle-woven without regard to another. It is well to have as many needles threaded with color as there are color units in the row to be woven, These needlefuls should be long enough to step in a small unit of color which may extend through several rows of weft, or they should be as long as the weaver can manipulate readily if the unit is large in the design being copied. When a contrasting color is started, the end of the new medium is caught in a loop made in the end of the preceding strand. This small loop is made to prevent the stitches already taken from raveling out. It serves the double purpose of securing the tip of the contrasting colored medium also, as mentioned. The end of the discarded medium is left hanging on the right side of the rug surface, and the tip of the contrasting color may also be left sticking out. See Navajo Rug Plate 8. When each new color is introduced, it is begun and ended in precisely the same way, so that when a row of weft has been needle-woven, there remain as many loose ends as there are colors so woven in. Sometimes there will be twenty or thirty, or even more of these loose ends visible in a single row of a Navajo blanket in the process of weaving. Dexterity in starting and ending colors in this looped fashion is soon gained, and the weaving becomes an interesting work. A color is brought up into a succeeding row of weaving by stepping. This is done by drawing the medium about the warp in the upper row and through the loop of the color strand being discarded. Continue the weaving in this upper weft row until this color in turn is discarded for a new one. Then introduce the next color and continue as before when there is a discrepancy of more than a few stitches in consecutive rows of weaving caused by the exigencies of the design a new needleful of color should be started instead of stepping the color when a rug pattern is stepped in first and the background woven in about it later the method of work is similar the rows of pattern should not be battened down tight before the rows of weaving are complete For the background medium must be run through the loops at ends of design stitchery as it is stepped into the row above. When each few rows of background have been filled in, the entire width of WEPT should be battened down as tight as possible. It will be seen that the battening down is simpler in the row by row weaving previously described. The Navajos are continually battening down their blankets. So tight is the weft sometimes that the blankets are impervious to water. To ensure a design working out according to a pattern, each warp strand holder should be numbered on the beam. The motifs must be calculated to fill definite spaces and must be begun and completed within the number of warp strands that correspond with the vertical lines in the drafting paper on which the pattern is made. Lines can be drawn and numbered on the stretchers to correspond with the horizontal cross lines on the paper and absolute accuracy be gained, as in taking off cross stitch patterns by counted stitches. In the row by row weaving, marking the stretchers can be omitted, though beams should be marked. If a fringe is to be made, use six or more strands of yarn twice the length desired for the fringe double through the center, and pull the loop through an interstice formed when two strands of the warp are tied together close to the rug to hold the weft firm. Draw the ends of the yarn through this loop and pull tight. Repeat in each interstice, smooth the fringe so made on a table or the floor, and cut the ends even. It is well to remember that the Navajos weave blankets primarily. The name has become so deep-rooted that, even when they make actual rugs in response to the insistent demand, the name remains. The blankets, like ancient tapestries and cross-stitch carpets, were originally used for many purposes. They were wrapped about the body as sleeping blankets, hung before the openings to wigwams and hogans in lieu of doors, a use in accord with ancient oriental custom also. And spread on the ground like carpets, etc. The extra heavy blankets, not the soft, pliable ones, suit the last purpose now, as then. From this, it is also apparent that the blankets, especially in the very soft, fine weaves, make wall hangings of startling decorative beauty. Navajo saddle blankets are used with great effect as table covers. Needle-woven reproductions, therefore, find many uses, and each in character with the original object of cover, carpet, and hanging. Part 2. Colonial Rag Rug The needle-woven rug, Navajo or colonial, piques the interest of rug-makers. It occupies a place by itself, partaking of the inherent elements of embroidery, tapestry, and weaving, yet without entering into any of the classifications sufficiently to be included without reservation. Therefore, it has acquired the descriptive name of needle-woven rug. In the name is disclosed the tool of construction and the method of making, together with a clue as to the necessary equipment, for a woven textile involves a loom, however crude, In this instance, the loom must be such that the textile made thereon can be fashioned with a needle rather than a shuttle, and the technique of the stitchery must reproduce weaving in its simplified form. On the earliest looms, such stitchery was used. It is not essential that we revert to the type of loom used in prehistoric times, which had but one piece of wood in its framework. On this branch or stick, One end of each long strand of warp was wound and tied securely. When this single beam had been sufficiently warped, the loose ends of the strands were brought together and wound about the body of the weaver, or about some tree trunk or stick of wood thrust firmly into the ground. The weft strands were run through and about those of the warp by the fingers or by some sort of needle. Such looms are not entirely abandoned, for in some parts of the globe natives continue to use them. In a later primitive loom, two beams were used, one for each end of the warp. These were so heavy and so suspended from a sapling, cut down and placed horizontally in the crotches of two nearby trees, That the warp was kept taut. Such looms warped with more complexity remain in use among native weavers both in the Orient and the Occident. Many of our choicest Oriental rugs are woven and not tied on looms of this sort, as also are the famous Navajo blanket rugs of the Western Hemisphere. It is on looms of like simplicity that needle-woven rugs are made. The looms are like hooked rug frames, except that the top and bottom sticks of wood, the carriers, are indented or otherwise marked off with pegs or tacks. Through or around these fastenings, equally spaced, the warp is wound. The side pieces, spreaders, hold the carriers immobily apart, so the warp keeps taut. These are called frame looms because they actually are frames. Any hooked drug frames of sufficient size can be fitted with warp holders and become frame looms. All looms are constructed on the same principles, the mechanism gradually becoming more intricate until the monstrous looms in carpet factories and mills have resulted. Early in the evolution came the hand loom, with its shuttle, and somewhat later the loom, manipulated by the feet as well as the hands although the weaving itself was all handwork. A shuttle took the place of the needle. The name by which this loom is known in America is the Colonial Loom. The floor coverings made on these looms of early settlers are among the first that carpeted the homes of these people, antedating hooked, crocheted, and various other kinds. The name Colonial Rag Rugs has fastened itself aptly upon them, when made in lengths laid side by side, whole rooms were covered with colonial rag carpeting, a distinctly handicraft floor covering. Rugs of this sort come under the heading of loom-woven rather than needle-woven rugs, but they are touched upon here because nowhere else are they discussed in this treatise on homecraft floor coverings. The size of these colonial looms is so great, and their shape so ungainly, that one could not be housed in every dwelling, nor could space always be devoted to it even if the home were large. Considering this and the cost of the loom, the difficulty in setting it up, and the fact that the warping is such a circumstance that even expert weavers elect to send to some nearby mill to have the looms warped, for the economy of both time and warp, It seems to put this type of rug weaving in a class entirely by itself, as indeed it is so considered. In this book, those rugs are discussed that can be made within the limitations of any home. They require no equipment larger than can be accommodated readily within the confines of any house or apartment, however small. A hooked rug or needle-woven rug frame loom is the largest article of equipment necessitated and no tool is larger than a crochet needle or rug hook. A word about some of the smaller looms may not be amiss. There are on the market today many excellent handicraft types that go under the name of table looms. In them, the warp is wound on enormous spools, thereby minimizing the space otherwise needed. A few models may be used in rug craft, when rugs are very small or are made in narrow runner form. The directions for warping these looms come with them, and as there are many models, it would be useless to attempt to give directions here. The rug weaving on them can be done according to the method described for frame loom rugs. On these table looms, it is possible, by seaming breadths together, to make wide rugs in strip formation, with rags in colonial type, or with chenille for rugs bearing this name, or with candle wicking, Germantown yarn, or rug yarn for amaranth rugs. Rags are sometimes requisitioned for the latter. As Navajo blankets are seamless, the strip-woven rugs would not reproduce them satisfactorily. The shimeo blankets, much like Navajos, do have seams, however. Two distinct kinds of needle-woven rugs can be made on the simple frame loom, the colonial rag rug and those in the style of the Navajo blankets. Any suitable weaving medium may be used, and the rug acquire thereby a name, chenille rug. Candlewick rug, jute rug, etc. Or if a weaver becomes very dexterous and introduces designs, names can be acquired thus also, as the bat rug, a well known design of colonial loom weaving. In all, the weaving is precisely that of darning, in which the needle carries the weft medium over and under warp strands. So different are the results in the colonial, and in the Navajo rugs that in the first a plain weave is found, while in the second elements of tapestry weaving are distinctly apparent. It is interesting to note that these elements are beginning to be incorporated into a novelty type of colonial rug. These are usually in bold floral patterns and are called tapestry rag rugs. They are totally unlike Navajo blanket rugs, although the method of introducing color is quite similar. The Navajo rugs are reversible, being identical on both sides. The tapestry rag rugs are not. This is in part due to the coarseness of the rag strands and partly to the method of weaving. Each color is woven back and forth, making loops where the turns come. These are always on the wrong side and visible. They are also noticeable to the tread, although they flatten down with wear. By following the Navajo methods of weaving, reversible tapestry rugs, minus these characteristics, can be fashioned on frame looms. The equipment for making a needle woven rug consists of a frame loom, one or more needles, and a weaver's comb. The needles may be bodkins, hammock needles, Or slender tapering sticks of wood having holes for eyes made near the ends that are straight. These wooden needles should be sandpapered to make them smooth. An ordinary coarse comb of metal, bone, or composition may be substituted for the weaver's comb if the latter is not obtainable. A furrier's comb, having coarse teeth, is strong. It should have dull ends to the teeth, not sharp tips, Whatever the type of comb used, the teeth must not be sharp. A heddle is an advantage to a rug maker. This corresponds to the held rod used by Oriental and Occidental rug weavers and is used to bring forward alternate strands in a row of warp so that a space is made for the easy passage of the medium. By reversing the order of the warp strands for every other row of weft, The correct shed is immediately formed, through which a number of darning stitches can be taken simultaneously. In some instances, frame looms come with heddles of one sort or another. Besides the various kinds of frame looms that are on the market, the rug maker can fashion one for herself, if she so chooses. There are several types easy of construction. Directions for making them and for warping the different models are given. A frame loom can be made of four strips of wood with corners mortised precisely, as in a hooked rug frame. Or, a hooked rug frame can be transformed into a frame loom with very little trouble. If the frame is made expressly for weaving, use the narrow side, that is the edge of the two short strips, for the top or surface of the beams, as the top and bottom pieces are now called. These are known in the hooked rug frame as the carriers. The surface of the beam should be indented every one quarter or one half inch. These incisions should be about one eighth inch wide to take the coarse carpet warp. Although there is no prescribed size, a satisfactory one for a rug frame loom is 42 by 60 inches. The strips are of five eighths by one and three quarters inch boards. The long strips are stretchers as in a hooked rug frame. Each of the short strips should have the indentations on one of its narrow sides. When notched, these two strips resemble dental moldings. If a hooked rug frame is used, the warp holder may be of round-headed tacks or of double-pointed ones, which have the distances between the two tips either one-quarter or one-half inch. These should be hammered into the carriers, so that the space between each round-headed tack, or the tips of the double-headed tacks, should be exactly one-quarter or one-half inch, according to the distance desired between the warp strands. When the frame loom is set up, it is ready to be warped. Coarse cotton warp, the cotton cord used in making hammocks or any cotton or linen twine of carpet warp size can be used. The Navajos warp with wool, but this is not used for needle-woven rugs. One end of a length of the warp is laced through the teeth of the indented warp holders, or about the tacks, and the warp is then brought from the first indentation across the loom to the corresponding indentation. Around the first tooth in the frame, so that it can be run through the second indentation, then across the loom to the second indentation, about the frame, and through the first indentation again. Repeat the process over the same route so that there are double warp strands across the loom from the first and second indentations. This makes the edges of the rug especially strong. When the warp reaches the beam where the warping began, after this double warping is completed, it will come through the second indentation. Wind it about the second tooth and down through the third indentation, across the loom and through the corresponding third indentation on the lower beam, around the third tooth and up as before, and so continue weaving the warp up and down through consecutive indentations and about the teeth in like manner until the entire loom is covered with warp strands spaced with exact precision. The last two warp strands should be doubled by lacing the warp back over them again as in the beginning. The warp strand should then be cut and the end laced through the teeth, securing it firmly. To hold the warp doubly secure, The strand may be taken about the lower beam as well as each tooth, as done at first. The only difference in warping the loom with the tack warp holders is that the warp is taken about the tacks instead of through the indentations. If the heads of the tacks are not too tiny, the warp cannot pull off. When warping the frame fitted with double-point tacks, The warp will have to be threaded through the tacks as well as about them, which is not quite as easy as in either of the other arrangements. The two matters of importance are to have the warp strands run in parallel, vertical strands across the loom, and to have them correctly spaced. They must be taut, but not strained. When the loom is warped, the weaving can be commenced. All articles needed should be assembled, the comb for battening down the weft, the needles of whatever sort chosen, scissors, the pattern, and the medium and colors required, together with extra warp for making the improvised tenterhooks. The needle-woven rug in colonial rag rug style is made with a cotton warp generally, linen being costly. It may be in unbleached, natural tone, or in some fancy hue, such as blue, red, green, etc., or be multicolored. When the loom is warped, the threaded needle is run in darning stitch from one side of the loom to the other, over and under each alternate warp strand, using the weft medium called for in the special part of the weaving being done. The work may progress from one end of the rug to the other, the final part being a duplicate of the weaving at the beginning of the rug, or half the rug may be woven, the loom reversed, and the opposite end then be woven to meet the first half. Both are accepted methods. The weft is rags, cut or torn, as for hooked rugs. The width chosen depends on the closeness of the warp, one-quarter to one-half inch apart, influenced by the weaver's preference. Narrow weft may be employed even on the 1 half inch warp. The rag strands should be anywhere from one quarter to one inch wide. Heavy textiles should be cut narrower than the accepted width or thin goods wider, for there must be a uniformity of sizes in strands used together. The width of strips must be determined upon before the strands are made ready and all conform to the thickness of the size chosen. The first three and one half inches of weaving may be in any kind of medium. It must be closely packed down by pressing, battening down with the comb. This forms a firm support for the rest of the weaving. After the first rows of this indifferent weft, there should be a strip of weaving from one to one and one half inches deep, which is technically known as the web or heading and in which the warp medium in double strands is used as weft also. The weaving is started by looping the weft about the first two warp strands nearest the edge and then carrying it back and forth from one selvaged side to the other in weaving stitches. Each row of weft goes over and under the warp in reverse order in consecutive rows, as in darning a hole, When the weaving has been entirely completed, whether woven from end to end of the rug or by halves, first from one end and then from the other, the final weaving coming in the middle of the rug, the rug is ready to be taken from the frame. Should there be any loose ends of weft, it is advisable to lace them in through the stitches first, then cut the warp where it goes about the warp holders and the textile is released. Ravel out the three and one half inches of weft at each end until the web is reached; this remains intact. Tie each two warp strands together so that the knot presses up against the web firmly. The warp ends form a fringe which may be knotted again, combed out, or left as it is for time and wear to untwist. Smooth out the fringe on a table or the floor and cut the tips of strands to make all of equal length. Examine the weave, and if there are any places where the weaving is not close and firm, spread the weft with a bodkin until symmetry is gained. Great care must be taken with the center of the rug when the weaving is done from ends to center to ensure a close texture. The Navajo weavers are said to spend almost as much time in weaving in the central weft row as that required for quarter or half the entire surface. There are certain knacks in weaving that are helpful to know and which should be followed. For instance, the weaver must exercise care not to draw the weft strands tight, for this pulls in the warp and narrows the rug. A close weave is not made thus, but by pressing down the rows frequently with the comb. This must be done across the entire width of the rug. The harder the rows are pressed together, the more expert the craftsmanship will be. This process is called battening down the weft. As the weaving progresses, occasionally insert a short length of the warp medium through the rug close to the selvage and tie it about the spreader of the frame loom. This acts like a tenter-hook and holds the textile straight. There should always be two such substitutes for tenter-hooks, one put through each opposite salvage in the same row of weaving, so that the pull between them will be even. To instill variety in rugs, a band of solid color may be woven in each end of the textile, just above several rows of the field medium. These bands form rug borders, which may be used to accent a desired color scheme. A field in hit-or-miss-weave is neutral, and such bands add character. It is possible, however, by having some one color used more frequently than another in the variegated hit-or-miss-weaving to secure, in this neutral ground, a tendency toward any special color desired. A row or two of black, inserted each side of a border, even though it be but a pin line, supplies another note of decoration. Fields are sometimes in one flat color with bands of a contrasting hue woven in for borders. Three borders, two narrow ones each side of a wide one and none far apart, give another different ornamental effect. Suggestions of pattern may be wrought in the weave of a colonial rag rug. For instance, the crow's foot or arrowhead design can be an embellishment for a border. It is made as follows. With a needle threaded with black or some dark, strongly contrasting hue, take a stitch diagonally across a stitch or square in row of weft just inserted, starting the stitch from the right-hand selvage. Bring the needle up at a distance, so spaced that the reverse side of the rug also has a like diagonal stitch going forward, but at a different slant. Were the textile transparent, these stitches would show as a zigzag, or meander, across the weft from one selvage to the other. In the next row, the stitches join these, but in opposite direction, so that a horizontal V is formed. The resemblance of this shape to an arrowhead is immediately seen. After several rows are thus woven, a faint semblance to a crow's foot is responsible for this name. These diagonal stitches must be put in just after each row of weft has been woven, over which the stitches are to be taken. The battening down of the weft should be so hard that it would be difficult to thus embroider the pattern afterwards. The facility with which the pattern can be made, however, is such that no amateur need hesitate to work it. Other simple patterns, such as appear on colonial rag rugs, may be used. In the colonial rug pictured on the frame in the process of weaving, plate eight, five ways of introducing color through design are shown. One, the lines enclosing the arrowhead border are in straight weaving of a contrasting tone. 2. The arrowheads themselves are threaded over a foundation of weft. 3. The broken lines are of short strands, each overlaying its length of woven foundation. By wrapping a strand around its length of weft, the pattern can be made to appear on both sides of the rug. 4. The medallion is stepped in the weave. 5. The initial is worked with tapestry yarn in cross-stitch. Each section of weft, between its enclosing warp, is counted as one square. This is a bath mat, which, when completed, will be twice the length of the loom, as the warp is threaded around the frame. When the lower warp strands are cut, the woven part is drawn to the back of the loom and the warp repositioned and secured for the completion of the weaving. The Navajo rug illustrated on its frame is to be so treated to increase its length. It will be seen that by such manipulation of the warp, a comparatively small frame loom becomes adequate to rug craft. End of chapter 5